Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. So I thought, sure, I'm going to jump on this and build it up. But it crashed the week I started. <laughs> and then, Nico, 2008, remember 2008, financial crash. Oh, my God. AE's business revenue went from $90 million in Q3 of that year to $30 million within two quarters. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled you've chosen to spend this time with me, and I'm excited to bring you today's guest. Today's entrepreneur has been a power electronics executive for three decades. From his early days at General Electric till today, Ed Hecox has established credibility as a power executive indeed. And since moving into the solar power industry with advanced electronics back in the mid-2000s, He's been at the helm of not one, but two inverter companies that have taken number one market share in their respective segments. I've been an admirer of Ed and his business partner, Casey Miller, for years, and I've long awaited the opportunity to learn more about how they blended their entrepreneurial and corporate endeavors. You'll learn more about that today as well. We dig in deeper to Ed's trajectory, including his first startup experience post-graduation from Stanford. The stories are telling of an entrepreneur with grit, insight, intuition, and perseverance. I hope you'll get as much out of this discussion as I did. I'd also encourage you to head over to mysuncast.com if you haven't in a while and check out nearly 200 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories. You can get on our mailing list as well, which is one way we could stay in touch and you'll know when the next episodes drop. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, Solar Warriors, today's entrepreneur brings a particularly interesting and insightful uh, view into the symbiosis between working for companies and working for yourself. Ed Hecox is currently and has been for some time now, the general manager of the Americas for Chint Power Systems Americas. Today, we're going to talk a bit about how that came about. Ed's got 30 plus years experience in power electronics, uh, starting his uh, career straight out of mechanical engineering school at uh, GE, uh, and then taking a 10-year stint as VP at Emerson Network. And that's where he sort of cut his teeth on working in Asia Ed has a tremendous amount of experience to share with us, and that's why I'm stoked that he's on Suncast today. Ed, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nico. Glad to have a chance to talk to you and appreciate your podcast. Thank you. Thank you, my friend, and I uh, appreciate you. For those that have been uh, uh, around a while, they know that I've uh, done a bunch of different stuff with the Gent Power team from uh, live events to stuff here on Suncast. So grateful for what CPS is bringing to the world. But I am really, as, as I'm sure we all are, very curious when you maybe fell in love with solar power or clean energy. 
Well, my whole career has been power conversion. Actually, as you mentioned, starting with GE way back, utility scale, power systems. Actually, at the time, I was completely bored by it. Got infatuated with power conversion opportunities in Silicon Valley, working with companies like Apple, HP, Cisco. Got all excited about Silicon Valley. So kind of headed south from uh, my GE uh, Schenectady days. From there, developed my career and actually found an opportunity to go to Stanford. And at Stanford, surrounded by all the smart, wise kids, I really did get exposed to all the uh, innovation and creative thinking around uh, renewables generally. And that's where I um, did some projects actually on solar, uh, electric vehicles. For In case of uh, solar, we did a project in venture capital class trying to study a business model pretty much like Sun Edison. And I was so frustrated because it seemed like such an awesome business, big market opportunity, but we could never get the business model to work. Mm. And maybe 10 years later, we figured out that the business model didn't quite work. <laughs> so um, anyway, that was a time at Stanford where um, I started learning about solar, watching solar, and it was adjacent to my power conversion experience in power electronics. Did an interesting project with Shai Agassi at the time, the president of uh, SAP. He had a dream to create uh, electric vehicle infrastructure on a country basis. So basically setting up the whole infrastructure, in this case, studying countries like Israel. And ultimately, he got something going in Denmark. But we had a team of about eight people, eight students doing the modeling, studying the business model, studying the economics. Project Better Place? Uh, I think that's what it became. Yeah. At the time, he asked if there were some students interested in this concept. And basically, we created a whole business plan, business model. He had the vision and a dream. Uh, we did all the, actually, I didn't do the hardest part. <laughs> but uh, with the, the other um, classmates, we put together about a 50-page paper, white paper on how to do it and what the economics might look like. He ultimately executed that. He got hundreds of millions of dollars, I think, from Morgan Stanley to create a new company. What I really love about solar now is this atmosphere of constant change, constant transitions that open doors for innovation. We can do things quickly. We can experiment with new ideas. And I saw all that energy, all that excitement, and realized it was kind of adjacent to all of my power conversion experience. And, and a lot of that would be relevant to the industry. So definitely look for an opportunity when I was leaving Stanford to, um, to get connected to the solar industry. I think it's worth mentioning the gap between undergrad for you, mechanical engineering, and graduate school at Stanford University is almost 20 years, which I would say like back then, maybe not necessarily odd, but today it seems like people rush back to grad school a whole lot quicker, like after two or three years in the real world, so to speak. What were some observations that you made having had 10 years running companies, actually almost 20 years running companies as, at a VP level when you came back to grad school at Stanford? Well, it was a very shocking experience. So my, my, my idea for going back to grad school after studying mechanical engineering as an undergrad was to fill in the blank spots that I didn't get, that I heard MBAs would get, you know, finance, accounting, strategy. Uh, HR, organizational design, you know, organizational behavior. And what I figured out two weeks into the program, and what I went through is called the Sloan program. It was a one-year full-time. I lived on campus. There were about 55 students from all over the world integrated with the MBA uh, curriculum, partly. 
but not completely. We had separate classes that were optimized for people that have been doing business for 15 plus years. My idea was to go fill in the blanks of what I didn't learn early on. And it was a great, I was looking for a transition anyway. So it was a good kind of segue. And um, what I figured out two weeks into Stanford was the classes didn't matter. I'm not doing homework. All I'm going to do is hang out with these brainiac MBAs. All I want to do is have do projects, do, um, you know, brainstorming on venture capital, private equity, new venture, you know, new ventures. And I, I focused on clean tech batteries or solar type of projects. It was a long time that I was working. And what I found out very quickly was there was the opportunity to learn completely new things than I expected to learn. And I did pick up a little bit of knowledge on accounting and finance and strategy. And yeah, so that was shocking. And the other thing was these students are so smart. Like I thought I had done pretty well in my career, actually thought I was pretty smart. But what I found out was I was nowhere near having the intellectual horsepower of a lot of these students. But and it was um, a big challenge, actually, uh, to my confidence at the time. I thought, oh, my God, I, this, this crowd is hard to keep up with. But I did. And what I actually figured out about halfway through the year was something I didn't realize before going into class. It's one of the strengths that I had was different from anything I ever really thought was the difference between emotional intelligence and intellectual intelligence. And that concept resonated with me. And what I started realizing was actually most of the students were extremely strong intellectually, you know, GMAT scores through the roof. But actually what was not as strong as the kind of emotional experience connecting with people kind of understanding how things actually work, problem solving with personalities and cultures and language and, and, and location. So that became kind of a, a realization I had where I could kind of isolate, all right, what am I learning from this experience? What are my strengths that I could kind of capitalize on the second half of my career? Do you remember prior to Stanford, it, maybe it was at Celestica, maybe it was at Emerson, a moment where the idea of emotional intelligence really became present and aware for you? I had an excellent, excellent mentor, still good old friend at Emerson, who was my boss, who was not an engineer, <laughs> didn't think like an engineer, but was brilliant, brilliant at persuasion, but even better at kind of intra-company diplomacy and politics to get things done. So at Emerson, we're big global company, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, divisions across the world. What I observed was what he was awesome at was how to parlay resources, how to get executive excitement about an initiative, how to kind of rally buy-in and then execution. And it was like he was a magician. I mean, I was an engineering-minded sales engineer, ultimately sales manager and VP, but logic an analytical oriented uh, problem solver kind of um, sales and business development mindset. And this guy was an artist <laughs> and extremely charismatic and persuasive. And I thought, man, how could he get all these resources? Like he had an unfair balance of resources focused on his priorities. So that was a bit of a touch of emotional intelligence. At that time, I didn't think about it that way. I thought of it more like, man, that's a, that's a skill. I got a kind of try to develop, I got to learn and try to develop some of that capability. And actually, for sure, I mean, I'm not charismatic necessarily the way this guy was, but uh, 
definitely kind of learned that and used that for sure in Celestica at Advanced Energy, which was extremely dynamic and extremely difficult personalities there. And now managing CPS America, where we are a global company, but Chinese headquartered, a lot of cultural language and location barriers to try to get buy-in to drive initiatives that are really substantial and get execution. So I'm using what I learned from that fellow all day, every day, (laughs) trying to get things done now. A lot of folks coming out of Stanford management programs or, or MBA go into working for themselves or straight into startups. That's sort of your experience. What was your first role out of Stanford? How did that sort of that experience prepare you for what you went on to do with Advanced Energy? Yeah. So the first role out of Stanford was one year. It was a startup where I joined two MBA students and I didn't quite realize they were only done with their first year. They weren't going to be full-time employees. I became employee number one. It was a totally different market, different industry. I decided to try this bold move to do something bold. I was, I didn't want to do something boring. I didn't want a regular job. So I jumped into this web 2.0 startup environment with a couple of kids and I was in charge of business development for a product that didn't exist. Jumping in to being an absolutely being an individual contributor, which was a transition from what I had done in my career before. Actually getting all the sales done myself, figuring out how am I going to present, where am I going to go with this business in the kind of unfunded startup situation where we had to actually secure venture capital funding and then ultimately hire people and then ultimately make a product. You know, the experience of just jumping in and having a very wide role, very wide level of responsibility for what to deliver in a very small company was was challenging and it connected me with the kind of raw intensity and challenge of entrepreneurship. Because my career prior to that was I had jobs. I had a job and a bigger job and then another job and a bigger job. And this was almost like a project trying to create a product or a company. And it ultimately was not successful. The product wasn't very good at the end of the day. So it became unsuccessful. So after a year, I found this opportunity with Advanced Energy, which is really back to my sweet spot of power conversion. And of course, that's how I really got into solar. You say you found the job at Advanced Energy. Is that how it happened that you became the vice president of NGM of solar inverters at this massive power conversion company? Like, how's that? Yeah. Oh, the story is crazy. So, so I for sure knew that this Web 2.0 startup situation was really not the right fit for me. And I didn't think it was going to make it. So I found a way to get out. Advanced Energy was looking for someone and I had the right background. So for sure they wanted to interview me, but what they were looking for was a vice president of sales for their whole company. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. That's kind of getting closer. And, and I knew they had a solar division. So during all the interviews, they're talking about sales and marketing. And, and I'm saying, well, what about this solar division, this solar project? I see it on the website. I read about it. What is it? So what ended up happening was they had a kind of a secret that they were looking to find a general manager for that business, but they weren't yet interviewing. They were having some kind of a lawsuit with the guy that had the job before me or, or the company that he came from. And so they kept it kind of hush hush, but but towards the climax of the interviews, they said, Ed, hey, we have an idea. You keep asking about solar. We think you'd be a really good fit to lead this business. What do you think about joining us? Instead of being a VP of sales, 
become the general manager of this new business. We want to create this business. We have one product. We have one customer. And I said, yes, right away. Absolutely. I'd love it. I would love to do that. And uh, so that's how I actually got into solar formally. And uh, the door opened and I ran through it. I was so excited. And it was the beginning of a three and a half year pretty extraordinary journey, which I consider the most painful and probably one of the most successful parts of my uh, career. You know, for those who aren't familiar, and we could probably do a case study. Uh, God, I would love to do that. It'd be fun, a Suncast case study. I don't know if I ever thought about that before, but the work that you did at Advanced Energy is not to be understated or glossed over. Those of us who've been in the industry a while remember well Advanced Energy came out of, uh, you know, didn't come out of nowhere. They're, they're a power conversion company, but jumped into the solar industry at a time that was really well-timed because uh, SATCON and a few others were struggling. PV Powered was the only U.S. inverter company really that mattered. And Advanced Energy said, we're going to own the space that hasn't existed before called Utility Solar. And did and and like rare very quickly correct me for, uh, where I'm wrong here but very quickly grew revenue uh, to more than a hundred year hundred million a year the 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 vast majority of utility projects going in were using advanced energy what a wild ride for you how much of that was timing versus team and right product have you tried to unpack that for yourself oh absolutely when I joined was uh, middle of 2008 and at that time. They had one customer, co-development with, um, it was Powerlight, company that Sun Powerbot. So co-development partner, one customer, they shipped about 17 solar on inverters. Unfortunately, the week that I joined AE, Sun Power declared that the bipolar architecture, which was the, sun, the solar on inverter, the bipolar architecture was not suitable for the bias sensitivity of the P, uh, Sun Power PV panels. So I joined this company to start a business, basically convert a product into a business, basically a product to a product line, then a business. My customer, the only customer said, we can't use your product anymore the first week. Took me a little while to figure out how significant that was, but that pretty much meant there was no business. When I joined AE, they had an awesome engineer that really created the whole architecture and got the buy-in of the CEO to make a bit of a skunks works kind of venture on this inverter. And um, really good marketing guy as well. Um, Eric Seymour, Todd Miklos, good friends and awesome people. Got it started. Advanced Energy was looking for a leader to kind of pull it all together. So I thought, sure, I'm going to jump on this and build it up. But it crashed the week I started. <laughs> and then, Nico, 2008, remember 2008, financial crash. Yeah, a little thing called the global financial crisis. Oh, my God. So AE's business revenue went from $90 million in Q3 of that year to 30 million within two quarters. We had shutdowns for one week out of the month. That was all happening at a time when we're trying to bootstrap this new business. Another dynamic that was uh, a surprise to me, but sort of understandable is during that difficult period, actually within AE, most people really detested this inverter effort. The CEO had championed it, great visionary, championed it, drove it, supported it, but it was irritating to all the people in the core semiconductor business thought, wait a minute, this, this, this new division is losing money. It's siphoning off resources in engineering and, you know, manufacturing and, 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 and sales and, and me. 
So, you know, they were a little bit um, irritated by that. That dynamic was something to overcome. So we lost our customer, finance crash, total chaos in the finance you know, markets. And the, the company had to shut down one week out of the mo- each month. But what happened was we just fought through that, myself and um, the key guys. And we finally got a breakthrough. One of the key breakthroughs with, was with SunTech. Um, an early adopter at that time, and Suntech, a lot of good. Their their, their uh, EPC division was Andrew Beebe, one mm-hmm. of the key guys. Yeah, he's been. On we the we had a great story. So during that period of you know difficult period, actually th- five weeks after I started, I was told I need to go present a business plan for this division to the board of Advanced Energy, and those were a bunch of high power semiconductor industry experience, technology, people. That was a huge challenge. But we put a plan together and we, we, we were thinking, should we go bigger or should we go smaller? Most of Advanced Energy's power systems were lower power than our first Solaron. Our Solaron was 333 kilowatt. But most of AE's products were, I think, 100 kilowatt or less, maybe even 20, 30 kilowatt. Should we go to 500 kilowatt and then maybe a megawatt or should we go down? We decided go big or go home. <laughs> it was pretty simple. It's better to go bigger. And at that time, it looked like uh, the door was going to open and utility scale was going to grow. So we went to big commercial and utility scale. I am curious about a couple of things because you jumped in, experienced manager, fresh off your uh, management, new, new you know, management degree uh, with a bunch of tools in your, in your pocket. What do you feel like not only the time at Predictify, but the time you were at Emerson and, uh, and even GE before that, what mental models or what management tools really helped you the most when you were in the fire right there at, at AE? So one of the challenges at Emerson, so earlier on in my career, selling power systems to companies in North America and leveraging manufacturing resources in Asia, the challenge of creating products, you know, developing products, collaborating with customers and optimizing around what customers and the market requires, actually executing that with Asia engineering, different language, different culture, different location, and a different supply chain. Huge, huge, non-trivial challenge. Actually, I've been doing that now for like 25 years, but uh, I take it for granted. But that's a big challenge. So the kind of things I've thought about mental models, one is the challenge of creating consensus and executing with cross-functional resources that are distributed. So cross-functional coordination is something that I take a lot of pride in doing pretty well. It's a fundamental recipe that I think that I, I focus on creating alignment of different functions around the company's agenda. It really starts with strategy, a definition of where are we trying to go, and then breaking that down to a timeline, and the role of each function, the contributions of each functional area, to the extent that that's well aligned, well communicated, and that you hire the right kinds of people, um, execution can happen. So I experienced that early in, my, in the 90s, say earlier in my career with Emerson. I also experienced kind of part of that, which is relevant to what we're doing now at CPS, Chin Power Systems. In the mid 90s, working with Emerson selling power systems to Cisco, we had to custom develop every power supply, basically. In the mid-90s, all their power conversion was coming from North American companies, maybe European, mostly North American USA-based companies. So we had to convince Cisco, 
look, our company can develop these products fast and effectively for a substantially lower cost in Asia. Ultimately, we convinced Cisco to try that and it became successful. And over a few years, of course, everything moved to Asia in power electronics. So there was a massive shift and the cost savings for Cisco was enormous. The challenge was, can we execute well with distributed resources across the globe and then fulfill in a reliable, consistent way? I think the, the mental model, I, I think of when you ask about the mental model, I think about how, do you, how to coordinate these resources and across cultures and, and geographies and cross functions. So that's not trivial. That is something that I work really hard to do all the time. And you can imagine with uh, CPS based headquartered in Asia, it's quite challenging. And again, I can see the corollary that I'll bring, I'll, come, I'll circle back around to with one of the early wins for you at CPS with Invect. Before we go there, you weren't alone at AE. You came in and there was this existing customer sort of looking at timelines. One of the guys I was good friends with back in the day when I first came, became aware of AE was Jack Clayton, principally because he yeah. was the Western regional sales manager for utility, right? He effectively created sort of the sales pipeline for most of the big clients. And he's now VP of sales at SunGrow, like a great guy in the industry. Am I right that he was there before you? No, I think he probably came in just a little bit after. How did that team get built? The way it started was I teamed up with the engineering lead who created Solaron and then the marketing lead who was a really good marketeer. And we had to borrow, we had to borrow the sales team from the semiconductor part of Advanced Energy in the, in the first couple of years. Zach Ward was there first. He hired Jack later. There were a few other really good guys, but basically we had to borrow that team until we could bootstrap Solaron, have enough revenue to have a dedicated team. So you, you, you said, hey, it happened really fast. It didn't feel fast. <laughs> that 2008 was a horrible gap of almost zero business. Two, 2009, we started generating you know, a few million dollars. But then 2010, we got up to you know, 10, 15 million. And then by 2011, you know, we're, we were off and running. We had, uh, I think we went from about 35 to about 75 million that year. So it took a little while to get steam going. Initially, we had to borrow resources from the other part of the company. So I had a lot of people that were not reporting to me, but I had to try to drive the agenda. So fortunately, I got buy-in from the board of directors on the strategy. They're like, that looks good. Let's do that. That was effective. The CEO was supportive. And so that gave me kind of a backing to go rally these people around this business. And they did. And actually, I think they really like this business more than the semiconductor. So some of them transitioned to be full-time solar warriors. And now they're, they're still there. Hey, Warrior. You know, I've always thought that commercial solar should just have an easy button for financing, the way that residential solar typically has had. But credit has always been a gating issue. Until now. Energetic Insurance levels the playing field so that project developers can now offer the same electricity savings to small and medium-sized businesses that were previously reserved for the large commercial buyers in the U.S. alone. Their Interrate credit cover policy provides the missing link, that easy button I mentioned earlier, for commercial solar that a FICO score provided to residential solar, which enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects. You can check it out at mysuncast.com forward slash energetic. 
and submit your projects today. Hey, 70% of projects qualify and the review process is easy. Go to mysuncast.com forward slash energetic. Hey, are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize the ROI for your customer? Extensible Energy's Demand X software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches that data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes, increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Head to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your project and to learn more about Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers. You can learn more at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Well, your whole career isn't defined by your time at GE or Emerson or even uh, advanced. I think most people probably these days recognize you as the general manager for CPS. I think that the story of how that came about is is probably one of the most fascinating I've heard. But at a certain point, you decided to create this consulting business called Invect. Help me understand how Invect led to CPS. The story of advanced energy I mentioned was most painful and most successful. <laughs> uh, the painful part was the exit. So after the integration of PV Powered, I took a second seat behind the uh, executive in charge of PV Powered. Right. PV Powered, again, you mentioned, was one, of the, was one of the leading inverter companies. Advanced Energy bought PV Powered and integrated their team. Yeah. And man, it, it started off great. It all made sense on paper. The personalities, not so synergistic or collaborative. But I took a back seat be, to, be, to the um, executive at PV Powered. And I was happy to do that, actually. I was looking forward to learning from this guy. But things kind of went awry. There were a bunch of disappointments in um, public announcements and revenue predictions. And basically, I had a blow up with this guy. And I think of myself as the inconvenient truth. Nico, I don't know if you know, ultimately, I got fired by this guy. It was a big blow up. I think of it as the inconvenient truth because I was trying to save this guy. He was making bad commitments, over committing the business. And I was in charge of trying to make those predictions. So I kept coaching him and I, I kind of made a mistake. And I was, I was maybe intentionally making the mistake publicly saying, you're making a mistake. This is not right. These are not the right numbers. And he had enough. And so he said, Ed, you got to go. <laughs> and I said, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So it was kind of a bad ending. He got fired two weeks later because his numbers were completely jacked. No completely way. Completely overcommitted. The company had to do pre-announcements of failing revenue. And, and I knew it was coming. And I tried to save him. He got fired. AE had a tailspin at that time. That was fine. I was ready. I was done. I had done what I had set out to do. with I achieved kind of the most I thought I could do there. So I started looking for opportunities to do business development, jumping the chasm, the classic, how do you get a technology actually getting market traction? And we were really successful at AE. I wanted to do it again. And so I was meeting companies and I had good discussions with a few companies, but then I realized, you know, I don't want one of these jobs. I think, wouldn't it be great if I could start a company that could do this for multiple companies? So I teamed up with a great friend, extremely good partner, Casey Miller, who was also at Advanced Energy, who also had an exciting transition. Even while he was at AE, I was trying to convince him to join me. 
I said, we have opportunity to do this kind of a business, basically business development, jump the chasm for all these pioneering, innovative, innovative companies that get stuck. We saw it happening over and over and we thought we were pretty good at jumping the chasm and it really fun. We decided we would make a company and we called it Envect. In our networks, we had a lot of opportunity and ultimately we signed a deal with Chint Power Systems. So I knew the founder of Chint Power Systems, Frank Liu, and I knew him from my AE days because we were looking at that product line as a possible ODM partner. So Frank, very Chinese, but American educated and Western um, career experience. So he saw the merits of working with local Americans to break into the U.S. market. And we said, look, Frank, we can do it, but we're not really ready to join your company that has no HR, no payroll, no, no staff in North America. Um, how about if you hire our company to start your company? And he had some business in Europe and in Asia, but he thought, I don't think so. That's not, the, that's not how Chin operates. Casey and I, we persisted with Frank. said, Frank, this is the best way to get into North America because we can attract resources you will not be able to hire as a Chinese company coming into America. Remember, this is a 2011 election year. Obama and Romney were talking about hammering China and how bad China is. And it was not a very easy time to bring a Chinese company to America. Anyway, Casey and I were able to convince Frank and, and Frank was ultimately able to convince the company, Chint Group, which is about a, uh, now it's about an $8 billion company, that this is a good path for starting up a new business in America. Uh, so that's, that handshake allowed me and Casey to start NVAC. CPS, Chint Power Systems, was the anchor client. We actually ended up having about 20 other clients over the years, but Chint sucked us in, overwhelmed us. <laughs> We were very successful, and I'd love to tell you that story, but successful enough that it made sense for us to succumb and get folded into Chin Power Systems, which is where we are now. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, and, and successful might be an understatement in terms of accomplishing the goal that you'd set out for Chin in particular. What about Casey attracted you as a partner? I mean, choosing a partner is a hard, cho- a hard thing to do. Yeah, it's, I, I'm so lucky. I mean, he's a super person, but I know that now better than I did when we teamed up. So I guess what I saw in Casey was very smart. He's an engineer, uh, can execute on technical detail deeply and much more deeply than I can. So I saw that as a compliment. And our disposition is very um, kind of yin and yang, sort of um, we, we fit well together. Uh, good collaboration kind of mindset, a little bit, you know, flexible, but still you know, flexible in terms of, of, of um, working style, but also strong conviction around things that matter, like strategy and, and product choices and, 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 and values. So I know all this now better because of all the years working with Casey, but at the time it did feel like we had good synergies. He, he and I worked together. So he worked for me at Advanced Energy for about a year and a half as we were integrating PV powered. And interestingly, because he was in PV powered, he knew all the personalities really well. And I was like a naive guy looking to integrate with these cool new people and make this awesome business. And actually it didn't work out that way. And he was, he was trying to coach me the whole time and I sort of knew it, but I, I wanted to ignore kind of some of the things that were being said. So Casey and I worked really well together then at AE integrating PV powered. 
And when we had the opportunity to work together, we just jumped in and uh, he maybe was a little bit reluctant at first about this Chinese company called Chint. I mean, what a ridiculous, horrible name to try to bring for a company to bring to America, right? Talk about a punch in the nose about, you know, here's China coming on in. Anyway, we could be a good team. Also, Frank Liu was such a good leader and mentor. We bought into him as well. We trusted him as the kind of contact within Chint to champion us and support us to enable us to be successful together. Finding a great partner, a great fit is so critical. I could not imagine doing what I'm doing with CPS without Casey, or at least what we did in the early years. It would be so lonely trying to figure out how to solve these problems, how to overcome obstacles. But having a yin and a yang teammate, collaborating, commiserating, problem solving, tag teaming, you know, I get a vacation, he gets a vacation, and we rally each other. And then we have reality checks. You know, I'm an optimist. Casey's a realist. (laughs) So all that has made it a unbelievably positive experience. And yes, successful in many ways, successful. And um, yeah, long time, you know, lifelong partner and friend. But, uh, you know, I just could not imagine doing a tough startup without an awesome partner. How long did it take before you and Casey felt like you understood each other's roles? I got to believe that you started out and you, it wasn't clear. Like you do this, I'll do that. It started off as basically, all right, Casey, we got to do these about 10 things. Which ones do you want to do? Which ones should I do? Um, which ones should we do together? There were times where Casey led the sales team. Currently, I'm leading the sales team. He has tended to be aligned around products and in particular innovation and really looking at competitive advantage around products and solutions. I have tended to focus on execution, fulfillment, service kind of making sure we deliver uh, effectively. And I don't mean deliver, just on delivering a, a, a pallet, but uh, delivering the value. AC also is really strong on strategy, strategic thinking, and really thinking through positioning. So we naturally were able to align. And anytime we went to Asia, we were together. In fact, some people in China thought there was somebody named Ed and Casey. <laughs> they literally thought, who's Ed and Casey? It's like, what is that? Is that a name? Ed and Casey. It's two people. <laughs> I love it. We were like that. I mean, just teamed up to drive the hell out of this company to make an impact and prove that it could be done and then prove we could win. Do you remember a specific moment in time where you knew we found something? This is going to work. To me, the measure of proving success is not actually winning one customer or two customers, or 10 customers. What really made us realize, and I think generally in in entrepreneurship and in in a startup, is when you can get the same customer to buy twice (laughs) and three times. You need to have repeat customers because you can always sell someone on trying a product, I think. It's an awesome salesperson with a reasonable story and a a good solution can sell it. But, But that's not proving out. The, the possibilities and the value. You have to be able to execute, fulfill the value and, and secure the customer's repeat business. You mentioned earlier something that for me was a light bulb moment of thinking back on the history of CPS in the USA or Chimp Power in, in the US in particular in the Americas. You were involved in helping Emerson get into Cisco. Most who engage with CPS today probably don't realize 
is the importance of your subcontracting or, su- or contract manufacturing business in the early days. Can you expound on that? So while we're this terribly named Chinese headquartered company trying to introduce Chinese inverter at a time when people didn't want to buy from China, a lot of nationalism, tariffs, we knew that we needed to generate scale for economies of scale benefits and for credibility. We early on realized a good strategy would be to team up and do an ODM deal. So we talked to a number of companies and we ended up making the deal with Selectria, which has been a fabulous partnership long-term. We've shipped over a gigawatt, probably $100 million of business with them. For a long time, people, I mean, by nature, didn't realize that the Selectria inverters were really chint inverters with some Selectria parts. Like there was definitely value add. It's not as though that there was no Selectria stuff, but at a certain scale, it was all chint, right? They were just wrapping it. Well, we were wrapping it. I mean, we, are, we architected the product, put the brand on the product. We provided kind of a service backstop. But at the time, when we really first started, we did not have a service team. We had one service guy. They had 18 service people and a great American brand based in Boston. What could be better? It started off as a niche for them, like an opportunistic supplement to their product line. They were principally focused on what scale at that time? They were focused on central commercial products from, say, 30 kilowatt to about 250 kilowatt. During our relationship, they expanded to 500 kilowatt and getting you know, some small utility business. And they expanded to some residential. They did an ODM deal for that. But their core commercial product was kind of like TV Power's product at the time. 30 kilowatt to 250, got about 10 different models. And we come in and say, well, yeah, that's fine. But um, we have one model that can cover that entire product line. You don't really need all those. We did the same for CPS, by the way. When we started with CPS, they gave us this roadmap. We thought, well, that's interesting. But we really want to cancel the entire roadmap. And could you please just give, make this one UL approved? That was our first product. But with Selectria, they thought, well, these three-phase string products were kind of a niche, kind of interesting in Europe. Maybe we should add it to our portfolio as a bit of a hedge. And they knew for sure from the very beginning, our discussions, they knew we would be a competitor kind of bootstrapping our own business in parallel. And of course, they had no fear of a company named Chint ever getting successful in the US. But, um, (laughs) But we made sure we supported them vigorously. We still do make sure they have a viable business. Fast forward to 2019 and you guys own what part of the market share of the U.S. right now? Well, according to GTM, for the last three years or so, we've been number one market share for CNI, USA CNI, which at first was a terrible name. You'll never, you'll never be able to take market share. How'd that happen? What do you think? Just, oh, how did it happen? I mean, (laughs) <laughs> the, we had a, a good strategy and a good value proposition. What we ultimately did is we executed a strategy and a value proposition. And in the inverter space, actually maybe all of solar, basic execution is a winning formula, a winning strategy. We did a lot of things right. I mean, one thing we did is we picked three-phase string as a new architecture that we could evangelize, where we could create a competitive advantage. And we actually really believe we had a advantage. There were merits to that architecture. Maybe we're surprised that now three-phase string completely dominates CNI from you know 30 kilowatt to maybe even five megawatt projects, uh, which actually expands from CNI to community solar and small utility. Three-phase strings dominating now. But we were definitely the first evangelists of the architecture. We had to educate people on the trade-offs. 
what are the trade-offs? <laughs> Why would you even consider a little, a bunch of little inverters as opposed to one big one? A lot of good reasons, but they were not obvious to people. So in the early years, we had to evangelize, you know, full life cycle consideration, design flexibility considerations, you know, service cost over time. There were a lot of factors that ended up coming out to make string more successful. One of the biggest ones was a, a, a factor that is also maybe not obvious, but I learned early in my career when working with Emerson is the, uh, the flywheel of volume. The flywheel benefits you get on volume manufacturing. So with string inverters, they're on a semi-automatic, you know, semi-automated production line in a factory, like with conveyor belts and, and lots of volume moving. Central inverters built like a house. You build a frame and you build the insides and it kind of sits there and it's, it's um, totally different kind of efficiencies in manufacturing. And equally on supply chain with high volume component purchases, you get a lot of purchase leverage that helps you drive down costs. These are factors that really help make string inverters uh, more economical, you know, lower cost per watt, actually higher reliability. Then we, um, we did focus on some innovations too that um, were novel at the time, but that were really significant to make our product compelling. And with that, if, if a company has a compelling product and then can execute reliably, uh, we focus very heavily on the fulfillment, execution, service support. For a long time, Nico, up until a couple of years ago, I had two salespeople for the US. We had eight service people. <laughs> a lot of companies would have eight salespeople and two service people. I think that's SunGrow's model. I'm not sure. We stuck with the strategy of proactive, I call it offensive service. Proactive service, not reactive, not defensive, not a cost center, just to cost reduce and lower expenses, but offensive out there, helping customers with startup, helping solve problems, uh, bias to action, kind of flying when needed. And that's been a big part of helping us to gain loyalty of customers. Yeah. And again, focusing on the loyalty of the customer to incentivize that renewal. Make us irresistible. Why would a customer consider an alternative? So that's a challenge. It's not realistic to be irresistible all the time. And it's not realistic to execute perfectly all the time. We work really hard on it. And, you know, the things we've talked about here in terms of alignment, cross-functional alignment, everybody in the American team knows how we think about customers. We don't talk about revenue. I mean, we, talk, we don't talk revenue as much as we talk about customers and support and speed and service and fixing our problems. and being kind of relentless to overcome some of the bigger problems. And that shows through. Customers can see it. As you think back on uh, the lessons that you've learned, are there any particular mentors that stick out to you that have, uh, you mentioned one from Emerson, but are there others that have left an impact and indelible mark on you? What takeaways do you have from them? Well, Frank Liu, the founder of CPS, he passed away a couple years ago. You know, terrible, terrible loss for Chint and for our business. What was amazing about him was the open-minded, you know, global perspective he had, being American or Chinese-born, grew up in China, but went to engineering school in Rutgers and then in America, and then Western um, career path with Western companies. What, what was amazing about him is he could bridge these cultures in a way that was oriented around trust, trust first, and compassion, compassion, sensitivity for individuals, you know, on the team but drive, hard drive that 
became kind of the lead. He was the leader to drive the business requirements and intolerance for sloppiness. But all the while, that whole, all that, um, that approach that he had came together to create a very loyal team. He had very loyal people working for him. I saw that as, um, you know, pretty amazing balance between, you know, hammering people to get things done the way they need to be done, but also creating, you know, being compassionate and oriented around values of the, of, of the people care about. And then that, that yielding the loyalty of um, people working hard and, and, and trying to drive to reach the goals that he had. So that was really impactful and we miss him. Yeah. What a great story. I didn't know that about uh, Frank. Certainly didn't, had never met him. Uh, but in, our, in the number, you know, number of times that you and I have chatted, you've, you've shared your profound respect and, and admiration of he and his work. And it's not to be understated. Chint is one of the 10 biggest companies in China. Is that right? I mean, it's. Mm, actually, I'm not sure about that, Nico, but it is $8 billion. Founders, definitely one of the richest people in China, hanging out with people that you, we now hear about. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a huge multinational, multinational industrial energy centric company. I am curious to hear you have a phenomenal executive management as well as entrepreneurial journey. What, if any, advice might you give to someone who's just currently in the throes of startup life? Maybe they're a young entrepreneur, maybe they're uh, leaving executive career to start their own company. Maybe one thing that I only realized very clearly as an entrepreneur myself is that it's it's completely normal to feel like you're absolutely near death before you achieve full success. <laughs> so feeling near death is something that may linger for a long time in the journey towards success. So as an entrepreneur, it feels like one mistake, one slip up, you know, one problem could be certain death of the company, even while you're growing and starting to gain traction. So I think that maybe this is normal and maybe even healthy to feel like the stakes are that high. And so that's something that I, I've learned and it's a little bit painful, but it is part of the process to finally get to the other side where you are successful enough that the company has um, you know, lasting power, lasting position. Facing failure as part of the necessary journey to success. So embracing failure, embracing mistakes, and taking the chances that may include failing and then rapidly adjusting, I think is really important. Thinking in terms of success does not, maybe should not be linear. And I honestly was a little bit too conservative in the first half of my career. I had this linear progression, sensible promotions, sensible moves, you know, grew in these companies. And then occasionally I take a big move. Maybe I didn't take big enough chances until I went to Stanford, did a startup, radical first employee, complete explosion, got fired at AE. So, and that opened the door to the most awesome experience I had in over the last seven years, building Chin Power and creating my own company and all that. But basically, I think that uh, I would encourage taking more chances and zigzag. Don't try to have a linear progression. Zigzag is a more optimal way toward maximum success. I love to read we have a book club here with, uh, within Suncast. Uh, so I like to recommend things to folks, but is there a book that you recommend or gift the most? Honestly, I think my ADD prevents me from reading a lot, Nico, but I love podcasts. So when I read, when I read, it's like, um, I do the quick newsletters, uh, PV magazine, GTM, solar newsletters. I mean, those are really useful and I jam through those very quickly. 
when I kind of dwell and I'm trying to learn, there's some podcasts I really like. One of the most interesting ones I think I found recently is um, Sand Hill Road, which is uh, venture capital, you know, journeys of venture capitalists and, and entrepreneurs. That one's really interesting. I think it's a relatively new podcast. I listen to NPR up first and New York Times a daily, kind of every morning or so, quick 15 minute hot news, which is relevant. The politics, very relevant to our solar coaster. McKinsey on China is interesting. The Economist, I find those interesting as I'm dealing with this international trade dynamic and culture dynamic and the whole evolution of Asia, China and other countries as a partner to the US. Um, of course, Suncast. And then uh, Solar Power World, I kind of like those, those podcast interviews with um, industry players. What consistent habit or practice for you has yielded the greatest impact? It is intense athletic you know, training and um, competition outside of solar. So basically an intense physical activity. That's a daily thing for you? Almost every day, um, not, not competing every day, but training and, and working out. And actually way back when I was in the nineties, when I was working for Emerson, you know, I would do all this travel and barely get a treadmill and be out of shape and feel terrible and never purge, you know, the, the, the stresses of, of work. And about that time, I decided that I'm going to make physical activity as important as work balance. I think, and that commitment to do it, it may mean when I'm on a business trip, all I get to do is walk on a treadmill for 30 minutes, but I'll do something just about every day so that I can um, get the, I don't know. For me, it's being physical is actually relaxing and moving a lot and in pretty intense sports. I really like, so uh, that's, that's kind of how I recover and <laughs> keep going. If it weren't for that, there's no way I could keep going. No way. Ed, are you present on uh, social media at all? LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Um, Awesome. Very, very light on Twitter. I have fun with Instagram, but I don't have anything related to solar and Instagram. And I'm on WeChat, which is kind of a Chinese Asia. For sure. WeChat is super popular for anyone dealing with Asia. For yeah, sure. I love WeChat. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you have to know someone's phone number to connect on WeChat. But, those, uh, but for those who, uh, who do have your phone number, I'm sure WeChat's the easiest way to find you. I know it has been for me. <laughs> yeah, it's a good tool. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And we'll also link to the CPS uh, Twitter feed where you guys do a great job of curating not only news about yourself, but interesting things happening in the industry. And let's finish today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, one bold prediction. I guess I got a few, but... Sure, throw uh, at me. Well, a few predictions. I think this whole China trade situation is going to settle out over the next year in a way that's going to be really healthy for America, China, and other Asian countries. I do believe, and I hope, but I do expect it's going to settle down and we're going to come up to have a new norm. There will be IP protection and, and consideration in China. There will be a better balance of understanding on um, what is fair trade, the whole topic of currency exchange. I mean, it's going to be settled. It's going to settle down in a way that's really productive. I think it'll be good for solar, be good for America, good for the world. I really do believe that's going to settle down and be productive in a way that we should be embracing Asia as a long-term intense partner and focus on comparative advantages and, and accept comparative advantages in these different countries and reduce the, ten, the tendency for our nationalism to really overwhelm what might be good for our industry. So I do believe that's going to settle down 
I hope it happens within the next year. I do believe it's going to happen because it's really best for all these countries involved. Ed Hecox is the general manager at CPS Americas, Gent Power Systems, and uh, principal and co-founder of Invect, along with Casey Miller, his uh, good friend and partner. And we have had such a fun time today. I really enjoy this. I hope that you Solar Warriors have got as much uh, in your goodie bag as I have from this conversation. Ed, such a gem. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Nico. Hey, all right. Thanks for sticking around to the end of today's show, Solar Warrior. Please do hang around for another couple of minutes, won't you? I have learned so much from Ed in today's conversation, and I'm eager to hear what takeaways you have from this show. Would you mind posting your thoughts on Twitter or LinkedIn and tagging us? You should be able to just search my name, Nico Johnson, on LinkedIn and find my latest post. I am certain Ed would love to hear from you, too. We're eager to hear how this episode has impacted you. As always, you can find the resources and highlights from this discussion, along with the social media links over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And please do also consider joining the newsletter. If you're listening all the way through this outro, then you're a truly special part of this tribe. Would you be willing to participate in our listener survey? I'd be honored if you'd take a minute to let me know more about you and how we can mold Suncast into something that serves and piques your interest week after week. There's a survey link on the homepage at mysuncast.com, but we're also linking to it in the newsletter. So be sure to join that and I'll be sending over the newsletter soon to your inbox with this survey. You know, I'm really so happy that you've chosen yet again to be here with us. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.